So we're here today with Bianca, the tiny home lady, the tiny home guru uh, of Ontario. Bianca, are you in a tiny home right now? Right this very instant, yes. That is amazing. <laughs> wow. So yeah, I got recommended to you by one of uh, my friends who already was following you. Uh, here in Ontario. And, you know, personally, I'm going into the kind of, you know, off-grid homestead direction right now myself. But I know so many people are fascinated with tiny homes. You know, I made this post on uh, on TikTok that got 600,000 views just about this change, recent change in regulations about, is it sheds? Is it tiny homes? Who knows? Listen on and find out from Bianca, the tiny home lady. So, uh, Bianca, like, where are you right now? How did you end up becoming a tiny home expert in uh, Ontario? Great question. So I am located just outside of Hamilton. Um, and so our family downsized into a tiny home about five years ago now uh, from a condo in the south of Guelph. Um, and just we're not interested in living that fast paced lifestyle anymore. Uh, we're outdoor, an outdoorsy family uh, historically. And so it was really important for us to kind of get back to nature. And a really amazing caveat to do that was to was to downsize. So we sold our condo, everything we owned, and we purchased our tiny home on Kijiji, which I don't recommend <laughs> right now, but I'm kind of an OG tiny home owner. Um, and so then from there, I really felt almost a little bit fraudulent in posting about my lifestyle, showing people the tiny home, giving them, you know, advice on how to engage in the natural world and how to bring their children outside. And people started asking me, well, how do you, how can you do this? How do you do this? And so as land stewards to the property that we're at, we have a very unique caveat to have accomplished that. And so then I just thought to myself, you know, I would love to be able to you know, do something in something big in my life that can help other people. And so that's when I started uh, just burying my head into tiny house policy. Um, and, you know, I, I resurfaced a couple years after that and came up with a policy that went through in Great County uh, and a bunch of different other um, areas in Ontario. And so that's kind of where I'm at now is pure advocacy, policy development. I help people downsize. I do all the things. So that is where I am and how I got here. Oh my God. Wow. What interesting story. I didn't realize all that background on you and your family downsizing from a condo. That's quite the, uh, that's quite the journey. So advocating for policy, are you, are you, are you sending text messages to Doug Ford late in the night about tiny home policy in Ontario? Bianca, be, be truthful. <laughs> um, I don't believe that I could ethically house Doug Ford's phone number in my phone. So I do not directly contact him. Um, but I definitely email and uh, connect with with policy changers and makers, um, you know, to to influence that. Uh, but directly him? No, <laughs> not got yet. It, got it. And even if you were, you wouldn't tell us anyways, right? So uh, that was not a good question to ask, maybe. But uh, okay, before we get more into the tiny home stuff, I have to ask you this ridiculous fun question. You're the seventh podcast guest on the Wild Ontario podcast that I asked every person. And it kind of tests, I guess, your wildlife knowledge of Ontario, but in a fun way. So this is the question. If you had to be eaten alive, asshole first, by a predatory animal in Ontario, which animal would you choose to go out by and why? Hmm. Moose, because it can crush my skull and then eat me. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I have not gotten that answer yet. But There's no surviving a moose attack. Zero chance. <laughs> that's very true. Many people don't realize how fearsome moose are. Okay, so you said just crush your skull and then eat you or not eat you? I mean, what a dealer's choice. Whatever the moose is going to do, feed me to your babies. I mean, they're 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 vegetarians, so they might not be interested. But who knows? Got it. Okay, good choice. Good choice. Oh my god. Um. Yeah. So your decision to uh, man, that was not expecting that. Um. Your decision to go into a tiny home. What was the size? Like, what was the size of the condo you moved to, and what was the size? Maybe you could describe the tiny home that you moved into. In terms of, you know, was it two stories? Was it, you know, maybe the maybe the layout of it? What was that like? 
Sure. So we moved from a two bedroom condo. It was about 950 square feet. It wasn't the smallest apartment my husband and I have ever shared. Um, we were in a basement apartment before that. So we were quite used to small spaces. Um, and we are now in 240 square feet. So basically our house is eight by 30 uh, on wheels. And we have a main area. I'm actually tucked in the corner. If you I can rotate you, you can see my beautiful mini fireplace. Nice. I, should probably, I could keep that in the view. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then we have a galley kitchen and we have a bathroom and a loft and a bedroom that my son shares with our clothes. Um, and so that's that's our space. That's literally it. That's amazing. And to make this leap of faith into the tiny home abyss, like were you watching YouTube videos? Like, did you have any particular like online creators that you were following or how did you get you know, this inspiration? Online creators, yes. Um, so, you know, a lot of them were coming out of the States, uh, which was, it's really hard when you're, when you're kind of romanticizing a lifestyle and you're literally dipping into the pond of trying to figure it out. You, um, you, you know, Netflix, Tiny House Nation, all of these different caveats in which we were doing our research through um, and seeing how we wanted to design our house or all of these different aspects. And so um, the problem with that, though, is that they're all climate sensitive. We live in a four season climate. And it, so it was hard for us to to kind of find someone and find a good house and, and see where people were living in tiny homes in the snow. Um, so, yes, I got a lot of inspiration from Tiny House Nation, from um, some Instagram accounts for sure. Um, but, yeah, so, I mean. That's really it to be honest. Cool. Awesome. And just to, you know, to kind of lay out the situation in Ontario for people, um, I'll give you an example. My friend who built, so he built an off-grid cabin that was, I believe, 10 feet by 22 feet. So you said that your current home is eight by 30, right? So he built this cabin, yes. but he was building it near Whitney, Ontario. And at that time, he was building it in this thing called an unorganized township. So I guess like for most folks that live in Southern Ontario, there's really only organized townships and the rules are very different there than they are in many areas of, you know, central and northern Ontario, right? Because for my buddy in this unorganized township, he didn't have to tell anybody what he was doing. I think there was some rules around, you know, it making a septic tank versus a, uh, not a porta potty, but, you know, an outhouse, something like that. But he was completely free willed. As soon as he finished building his cabin, that township went into an organized township. So he was very, very lucky because he didn't need any permitting or anything like that, right? So maybe that's the first caveat for people out there in Ontario is, are you in an organized or an unorganized township? And trans chances are, if you're French River or below in Ontario, you're probably going to be in a organized township, right? So do, do you, is everything I just said correct? It, yes. Yep. Okay. Absolutely. And, and so, so in your scenario, like, what land did you guys buy and what did you have to do to actually erect your Kijiji uh, tiny home in that, in that space? Like I, I, you know, caveat here too, you know, you do run a consulting business, so I know you can't give away all the goods, but you know, just uh, for, you know, stimulating conversation and stuff. Yeah. Like what were some of the things that you had to do to even get your, your home up and running in, in Hamilton? Yeah, so um, we we are outside of Hamilton, um, but I I'm pretty <laughs> I leave my location to <laughs> to the greater guessing. Um, uh, but anyway, so yes, we are actually land leasing. So we don't own the land; we lease the land from the property owner here. So the caveat there is we are on a piece of property that allows for a secondary dwelling unit um, slash garden suite. Anyway, so we were everything was kind of already set up for this structure to be here. Um, we did have a few code issues, just be things that we were not aware of. Um, as I worked in hospitality my entire working career, so I wasn't really familiar with building code and all of the things. Um, so that was kind of a, that was a big hurdle to get over. But um, yeah, so we are here as a garden suite um, and we lease the land. So we have a land lease agreement with the property owner here. Um, and that's kind of, I mean, I could absolutely get into the details of how to accomplish that across Ontario for sure. Cause I think people would love to hear some meat and potatoes and don't worry, I am ha absolutely happy to share all the things. If this was two years ago, I would keep <laughs> some things quiet. But I just want everyone to be able to do this and I want everyone to know how. So 
That's amazing. That's amazing. And I think also too, like, you know, give, giving all the dimensions to it now, people, if they're actually going to do it, they're probably going to want to talk to you to make sure all their T's are crossed and I's are dotted anyways. Right. So um, I get kind of, you know, the direction that you're coming at this with. Uh, so that's, that's really interesting. Yeah. Maybe talk through some of the uh, mechanics of what you had to do in the Hamilton area um, to, um, no, sorry, you, you were saying, right, that you had this caveat with the property, you were leasing it, and you've got a second, there was the possibility for putting essentially like a guest house on that property. So you guys had a kind of a special situation with your property. But I guess, yeah, for the broader Ontario and uh, in all the organized townships out there, um, what are some of the first steps you're going to have to do in terms of discerning, can you put a tiny home on your, on your property? Yeah. So great question. Um, the best way to kind of, Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I did not. How dare you. <laughs> my ear. I'm so sorry. This is laptop. I'm kidding. It's all good. It's all good. I don't even know how to do this. this is a brand new laptop friend. So hopefully nobody messages me again. So, um, okay. I'm going to break it down for you. Essentially there are two ways you're going to accomplish tiny living. And the first way is either you live in a tiny house on somebody else's property. So that is land leasing or you own property and you want to build a tiny home for whatever purpose, a principal unit, a secondary unit, or multiple units. And so people are finding themselves in one of a few categories. If you're an individual like myself who was looking to downsize, uh, I'm looking to live my lifestyle in a tiny home, but I can't afford excuse me, to buy land, I'm looking at land leasing because I'm self-contained to my own home. I can mortgage $200,000. Uh, well, now you can, thanks to the tiny house community. Um, and so you can ensure this, everything, all the bylaws are in place for this. So I can get into that in a second, but for the second round of people who um, can actually purchase property downsized from say, you know, their $2 million buyout in Toronto and buy land, you know, north of Aurelia or something um, to put a small principal unit on, you can absolutely do that. So um, if you're looking at buying land to put, to build, to build small, you are really only dealing with a few layers. Um, you, I believe, are in the real estate world, so you'll kind of understand a lot of the layers that I'm talking about. Um, protected layers are important, especially when you're dealing with the Niagara Escarpment Commission, um, any kind of conservation areas, any hazardous, hazardous overlays. So that's just something you want to look into anyway. Um, those are just regular construction issues also. And then the biggest thing is the minimum size requirement. So the minimum size requirement in Ontario for building is 188 square feet. You can build a, basically a structure meant for human habitation as low as 188 square feet. So the issue though, when you're going to look for property is the very first thing that you want to do is look into the town's or municipality or region's minimum size requirement for either a principal or secondary unit. So what that's gonna tell you is how big or small you can build the principal unit. Now you can get into, uh, so say you're moving, um, we'll just whip out Innisfil. I think I looked up Innisfil a few years ago and their minimum size requirement was 800 square feet or something. Don't quote me everybody, um, for a principal unit. Well, that completely eliminates tiny homes. So uh, as you're going through kind of these vetting processes with land, you also have a secondary option. So you already own property. Um, I mean, I can appreciate not a lot of people will want to take a risk in buying a piece of property they know that they can't build on or they don't know if they can. So say you own, you know, 50 acres in somewhere and it's vacant land and you want to build small. Um, you're going to look for that minimum size requirement. And if the minimum size requirement is too high, say it's 1200 square feet, which in a lot of the rural areas, it is quite high, um, depending on the zoning then you can apply for a sizing variance. So basically that's just asking the municipality to build smaller. You can also do this with your services. So a lot of people who wanna go off grid and they want to do so in an organized township, they just automatically assume that they can't and that's completely wrong. Um, one of the caveats to that is municipalities have requirements for municipal land. So any urban kind of lands, you're required to hook up to municipal services. So you can't necessarily go off grid in those areas. And by off-grid, I mean, um, you know, an incinerating toilet and a gray water system. But in rural areas, you can. Because if you think about lands on the shield, um, they not a lot of those cities are, are digging into the, to the shale or to the rock, <laughs> to the Canadian shield for um, septics and different things. So 
there's a lot of different ways and a lot of ways to look at it very differently. And so for me, I just kind of looked at everything differently and nothing was off the table when I was developing my tiny house policy. And so um, getting back to, so that's kind of, if you own land, um, you can definitely build multiple structures on land. That's the only favor Doug Ford gave us with Bill 23 is being able to build multiple dwellings by right. Um, so a lot of people who are interested in developing um, the bigger properties with multiple units, they, they can kind of do that with less development fees and all this kind of stuff. So that is kind of that caveat. And certainly you want to do your due diligence, which is why a lot of people hire me to help them understand that. Um, in terms of land leasing, this is a completely new scenario to the tiny house community. And I, you know, um, not to put like a crown on my head or anything, but have been the only one in Ontario to drive that through and to kind of from a grassroots level. And so I'm happy to say that that has gone through in a lot of areas through um, policy, through actual zoning bylaw enactment. Um, but through a lot of research and kind of grinding people's gears, I found out that you can you can land lease through the secondary dwelling unit anywhere in Ontario. Um, so that's exciting too. Oh my goodness. That's amazing. So my first question after hearing all that is you came at this from a very interesting angle, which is the minimum house that one can build on a property in Ontario is, I believe you said 188 or 180 square feet. Um, that's very interesting because, you know, a lot of times when I talk about tiny homes and like off-grid cabins and, and that kind of stuff, people talk about what is the maximum thing you can build without needing any permitting. So if you approach it from that angle, like I want to build something, but I don't even want to deal with permits at all. Is there anything you can build in organized townships that is completely unpermitted? Like what's this whole 16 by 10 foot, you know, 160 square foot new law from Doug Ford? What's all that about? Like, is that is that possible? Yes. So it just depends on intent of use. So essentially, um, yes, thank you, Doug Ford for this, um, but the, the basically there are two different ways to understand small dwellings and buildings. A dwelling is a, a where you're living meant for human habitation. So when we're talking about a dwelling meant for human habitation, 188 square feet is our minimum because you have all of your services, there's somebody living in there, they have a building permit, they have an occupancy permit and they have their addresses registered, there's a whole thing. Uh, unless it's a vacation rental, of course. So um, anything that is under 160 square feet is an accessory structure. So this is a building on your property meant for multiple uses. You, it could be a shed, it could be a bunkie, you could have a bed in there, maybe a tiny kitchenette. You can maybe you know have a glamping tent, a yurt, a dome, any of these structures, a treehouse, um, any of these kind of structures, but it's not meant for human habitation. So it does not require a permit. The permit is for a habitable dwelling. So can you build 166 square feet, or sorry, 160 square feet and make a house out of it and, and rent it out or expect people to live in it? No, that is not what it is for. And that it's really important to note that difference. Um, what makes a dwelling a dwelling? It's basically three, three of three services. You have water, you have uh, hydro and you have sewage, but you also have then the ways in which those exist in a, in a structure. So you have a kitchen, a living space and a bedroom and a bathroom. So if you eliminate one of those four or one of those three main, um, I guess, uses to an outbuilding, then it's not a dwelling. Mm -hmm. So you can still have a bunkie with a bed and again, a kitchenette, maybe, you know, a little bit of water to it, or maybe you have septic to it. Who knows what you have? But once one is eliminated, it is seen differently. You can have an outbuilding that's 800 square feet. But if you have all of the services to that building, it is a dwelling. And can you, you have to get services one more time? Can you say that what, what were those were there so four? main so yeah so three main services water sewage and hydro but those three services exist to a building in in different ways so your bathroom your kitchen um and your living spaces in your and a bedroom got it you have a so then you're yeah. dwelling right now in and around hamilton um <laughs> it has all three of those yes 
I am a I am a permitted dwelling here. So we, however, we have a permit for a composting toilet because composting toilets are covered under the Ontario Building Code. It's what's called a Class Two sewage system, um, which is right beside toilets and actually even privies, which is hilarious that it's all still kind of governed under the same <laughs> section. Um, but then we also have a grey water system. So grid for for septic or for your your sewage, you your water has to go somewhere. So you automatically jump into what's called a class four gray water system. So we have a French drain kind of uh, water field. Um, and we also are now careful about what we have in our house. So we use non-toxic um, products and chemicals. We use biodegradable soaps. And so it kind of allows us to, again, live in more harmony with nature and live a little more off grid. And yeah. Oh, that's amazing. So you have this uh, French drain you're, you're saying, which is almost like, is that kind of like a mini septic system, something like that? Yeah, if you can kind of envision a septic field, uh, drainage field, it's it's pretty much, you know, similar um, gray water barrels and there's a lot in the soil and there's, you know, different ways to kind of um, get the gray water in different areas and yeah. Oh my God, that's so cool. That's so cool. Interesting. Okay. So this is a, let me give you an example then. Um, I saw these regulations, new regulations from our Supreme leader, Doug Ford, and um, about the 160 square feet thing. And I got very excited, you know, cause I'm, so I'm right now, I'm at my family cottage on vacation this week. And, um, you know, we've had the main cottage for a long time. I've always dreamed of building like a tiny cabin back in the woods, back behind the main cabin, you know, like in towards uh, in, in the, the forest, the interior. There's a nice beaver pond there, you know, could build it overlooking the beaver pond, et cetera. Um, you could build a bunkie back there that as long as it's 160 square feet or smaller, but you couldn't have any of those serve those three out of three services you're talking about hooked up to it because then it becomes a dwelling. Then it would have to be at least 180 square feet or 188 square feet. And then it's, you need permits and you need all that stuff, right? That's, is, is that, is what I'm saying, correct? Exactly. Yeah. So you would want to be careful if you did put a structure out there, just because if it is on a hazardous floodplain, um, if there's water there, I'm not sure if it's man-made or not. Um, but if there's water, that almost definitely tells me you have a floodplain and setbacks to deal with. And also, um, you might be in a conservation area. I don't know if you're on Crown Land. I don't know where it is. Um, but there are a lot of things to, I think, take into consideration there the, you're going to have the cowboys who just do whatever they want to and that's fine um but most people are just going to want to make sure that whatever they're building is in harmony with the with the natural environment that's there and also um just making sure that it's not going to sink into the water at some point um but then the services is where you kind of then you get into environmental testing then you can you know you can kind of look up your property on a gis map for most municipalities um depending on where you're located some are more updated than others um and then yeah but what yeah again if it's a dwelling, you're looking at getting those permits, digging a well, or even having a cistern, if um, that's probably a better choice. But yeah. Very interesting. But if it's being used as a bunkie, then that's that's okay. If it's like a dry cabin. Sometimes you hear like in the tiny home world, you hear about this, you know, this terminology I've heard, dry cabins. And that just means there's no plumbing. There's no water. You might be bringing water in in jugs or something like that, right? Um, but it's not, uh, there's no plumbing of any kind. Um Huh. Very interesting. Yes. Cause I know in this area, I've heard a lot about, you know, there's setback laws um, about how, how far back, you know, cottages have to be set from the water lines and, and things like that. So that's definitely something to be uh, uh, aware of. Oh boy. I should send you these videos of this, uh, these people, there's a tiny Island nearby where we are. And these folks built this magnificent semi milled lumber, like where it's still rough on two sides of the logs, but it's finished on the top. And it just fits together very, very nicely. But they built it on this tiny, tiny island. And everyone's saying, like the neighbors are saying, how did they build that there? Because that's right. at Like the, the island is literally the size of the cabin. And there, there's speculation I had is that maybe they grandfather clause it in because there was an old cabin on that island for a long time that they tore down. So there's a lot of weird caveats too out there, I'm sure, right? About like grandfather clauses and, um, you know, stuff like that. Because it's like, how did these people do it? You know, how did that, how did these people build on that island? But I guess like you're saying, like you really got to check in with your local municipality and check out their website, their GIS system, all the different laws, and then probably call a consultant like yourself <laughs> to, to nail all this stuff down. Um, my, you're speaking of cowboys. 
if you want to see both the wonders and the horrors of the internet, wade into the comment section on the Wild Ontario, you know, post I did about Doug Ford's new 160 square foot, you know, law. Um, the 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 number of people in there just saying crazy, absolutely crazy shit. This is one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you is pretty wild. Like people telling stories about how they built a structure on their land. Um, a, a municipal zoning person came by and said, you can't do that. Like, we're going to come back and like, you know, uh, do something to you. And then they literally just cuss the person out, tell them to fuck off and literally stuff like, I'm going to shoot you if you come back. And then the zoning person just never, ever came back to their land. Right. There's like stories like that in there. And uh, I was like, wow, uh, that's really interesting. Um, so let me give you a specific example. My friend, he sold, who built that 10 by 20 foot uh, cabin in the township that was unorganized when he was building it, but then became organized after he sold that. By the way, fun fact, he bought the 30 acres, I believe, for $70,000. He built his cabin. He sold it for 400 grand afterwards which is pretty crazy now he was riding a bit of like you know he sold it during covid so there was that covid wave but um just putting some kind of insurable structure on a piece of land i think people would be shocked about how much that can increase you know the value of a property right uh vacant land versus uh versus nothing else um but anyways uh the reason i'm telling this story is Yes, after he sold it. So he's currently looking for a new place. I probably shouldn't tell because now the now the authorities are going to come hunting for him. He's been living in one of these tiny cabin kits that you can find in Ontario, right? There's a number of retailers that sell them. And it was made to the spe specifications of the old laws, which I believe was what, 110 square feet or 108 square feet. And it's one of those two level yeah. ones. He's been living in that cabin for probably a year now. And it's got a stove in it. It's a dry cabin, right? I mean, is what he is doing, and he's in an organized township uh, of Ontario. Is what he do is what he is doing technically illegal because he is actually living in it? You know what I mean? Um, I have two parts <laughs> to this answer. Uh, part one is yes, <laughs> um, but part two is like we don't have a any choices anymore. We have no options to to live we have people who are are at risk of of houselessness who would have never been the case in in this world the people are on a housing waiting list for 10 plus years their kids are going to be off to secondary education by that point it's absolutely ridiculous and so as a um <laughs> as a housing advocate, um, this kind of thing, I have to sit on the fence. I sit on the fence with a lot of things and um, that doesn't mean I'll fall for anything, but mostly when it comes to like building and housing <laughs> advocacy and then um, quality of life and the environment, there's a fence there. But anyway, what he's doing is maybe his only option. And let's say it's not, let's say that was just an example of, could this that be illegal for anyone? Yes, of course it is illegal. But at the end of the day, the laws are so rigid that mostly everything you do, if you're stepping out and it's alternative, it's not regulated yet. And so that's why we need policy. That's why we need inclusive zoning. That's why we need people to be having these conversations. And one of the easiest ways to do that is to honestly just talk with your municipality and just be really transparent about what you want to do in a kind and knowledgeable way. I have people call municipalities and say, hey, I want to do this. And they stonewall them. No, not a chance you hang up the phone and then I coach those people and they come and they consult with me and they say well they said no and I'm like they can't they can't say no to you they can't what you want to do is you're able to do it you just didn't say the right thing which I know not a lot of people like to hear um but I say okay go back and say this let's I'm so sorry let's look at your bylaws let's that's my husband he's in the woods right now oh. um <laughs> so Let's look at let's look at your bylaws. Look at let's look at the language. Um, and then I call the municipality and I get a completely different answer because I'm speaking their language. The only reason my policy went through in Gray County, um, it's a tiny house policy. I can send you the links. You can link it to, to this podcast in, in any kind of show notes you want to. Um, it is a tiny house land leasing policy. And the way that that went through was calling the county planning department and having a conversation and saying, would you take the time to look at this? And 
they said yes. And now the, I'm best friends with the planner. She's so lovely. And, um, well, we're not best friends, but <laughs> we like each other. And so, but I didn't yell and scream and I didn't like convoy down the highway and I didn't protest with my flags and I didn't go and stand out city hall and scream for, for homelessness and hell. And there's an absolute, um, need for that. So I'm not just disparring that. Um, but I went to the building departments and I went, I just backdoored everything. And then all of a sudden people were like, yeah, that's great. Let's do this. And they did it. And now it's a policy. And that's honestly all it took. So what your friend is doing, like, great. If we can live in a hundred square feet for a year, like I want to know how that's amazing. But yeah, it's illegal. (laughs) (laughs) And now the police are en route to his home. We will give his address for the authorities at the end of this podcast. They will be arresting my friend. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. So three things from, from what you just said, first of all, Bianca sitting on a fence, that's the most uncomfortable place to sit. You might want to think about that. Uh, the second thing is I'm happy on the fence. I'm happy on the fence. <laughs> I'm happy here. I promise you I'm happy. And the only reason I'm happy is because um, you cannot be a housing advocate and also environmentalist in the way, in the current context of um, development. I mean, I don't want to scale into our farmlands either, but we there's a way for gentle intensification to happen. And so I'm standing there at the, the Save Our Farmland rally, but then I'm also talking to the municipality saying, if you allowed secondary dwelling units and tiny homes, we wouldn't need to do these developments. So that's what I mean when I say I sit on the fence is like there's different ways in which I can support so yeah oh totally yeah I'm I'm on the exact same what you just uh how you just frame that up I'm of the exact same opinion for sure just when you said that I imagine like as a man sitting on a fence you know with our man parts that's pretty uncomfortable to do so I was like oh my god that's quite (laughs) that's quite the mental image no but I get what you're saying exactly because you don't want to super sprawl 1960s style into our the best farmland in the entire country like Doug Ford you know wants to do um you have to do it i like that word gentle intensity <laughs> that's a great word i mean that's exactly what it is we all win with gentle intensity right it's i just love that phrase that's a that's an awesome phrase um i don't think i've ever heard the the the, the two words gentle and intensity beside one another in a sentence before but it makes perfect sense uh for this and uh i was going to add you know about the the inclusionary zoning I mean, thank God, that's such a huge problem in the province and, you know, many places around the world uh, with this thing called exclusionary zoning, which thankfully the city of Toronto, at least, voted to end that. I believe that was like maybe two months ago or something. You know, I think something like 70 percent of Toronto was under exclusionary zoning laws, where basically the only thing you could build was single detached homes, um, which made it impossible to have any kind of gentle density, what you're uh, what you're talking about. Uh, if you look at the city of Paris, France, which I believe the core city has 12 million people, it's like one fifth the size of the city of Toronto. It's nuts. And it's not like they have a lot of skyscrapers there either, but the whole thing is like these four or five story, you know, those French classical buildings that were built like in the 1700s or the 1800s. So yeah, that that whole thing is uh, is 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 a crazy situation there too, um, but uh, yeah, okay. So my friend is living illegally. Uh, that's good to know. I'll tell him. Uh, but yeah, it's one of the cabins, you know, where it's got a it's got a second floor. So he lives on the top floor, and he's got a hot stove inside. Um, but yeah, it's kind of rough, you know. He's uh, but he's sitting on it. He just got four hundred grand cash from selling his property. So he's you know he's trying to find his next property to do this again. Um, Okay, so what if I want to get into this land, this lease, and you mentioned something about mortgages on like land leases as well. Um, But in terms of the unorganized situation, like with me, as far as I know, it's like, if you don't talk to the township, there's basically no requirements other than around like septic tanks. There's certain things about, like you mentioned, you know, environmental zoning, provincially significant wetlands, like stuff like that. So with unorganized townships, you're flying pretty free, right? Because you don't have to buy any permits for your main dwelling. If it's got those three services, if it's 180 square feet or larger, like you're talking about, is that correct? Absolutely. Um, so there are little to no building code requirements, um, but there are, yes, there are sewage. And um, I can't remember if there's water and hydro 
Um, but I mean, with one, you kind of have to have the other, of course, unless you're on solar, but yeah, so really it's just building, uh, building permits. You don't really need building permits for anything um, within reason, of course, check with the, the sister municipality because usually unorganized municipalities still have one city employee who, you know, helps with fire and ambulance and different things. If I can make any recommendations for anyone who's trying to do it is unorganized townships are very, they have inclement weather. Um, and so even though you don't have to build to code, I would say measurements don't matter as much as the insulation uh, and ensuring that you actually have a structure you can live in because building code um, exists for a reason uh, and it keeps it keeps that safe. Some of it's ridiculous. Like you, the the fire sometimes it's a little actually no that I'm not going to say anything about fire code fire code exists I love it my my father-in-law sells fire trucks we're happy with the fire code um but yeah so um how big a room can be how tall a room can be these are these are parameters in which you have no business telling somebody what size of a house that they should live in and also I have a lot of people who say well who's going to want to live in 240 square feet and I invite them to my house because it's amazing and it's absolutely beautiful and I would show you but I have a massive fridge sitting in the middle of my house right now um I just got a new fridge very exciting unique appliances um but basically that is yeah so that's really all you're dealing with um in terms of that it is really kind of still the wild west interesting yeah and like you said I mean it's it's uh, it's nice that you don't have to pay all that money and listen to some of the more stringent things. But I mean, the, you know, the 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 codes are there for a reason because uh, you don't want to build something that's going to light on fire with your your baby in its crib or your dog in its kennel. That would be terrible. That would be very very terrible. Um, yeah, you know, I remember checking out because I wanted to look at building this cabin here on my my family property, and uh, I think it was in this township. It was like fifty five hundred or six thousand dollars just for the building permit and then they charge per square foot on top of that um yeah so i was like oh my god this is more than a weekend hobby that's like a that's like a full-time thing you know um i think what you also said i want to reiterate is very important is like when you're dealing with these municipal employee people is that like emotional intelligence and not yelling like demanding things and yelling them at them uh, on the phone and, uh, you know, maybe even going down in person if they're nearby and talking to Debbie or Danny at the front counter. And uh, hopefully it's okay. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, uh, and and being super nice with them and just chatting them up and asking them about their pet dog, because if people like you, oh, my God, they will do so much more for you. It's absolutely crazy. And this particularly in the situation that you're talking about, it seems like there's a lot of leeway for these townships, these municipalities, et cetera, in terms of what they can allow and not allow. So it's really up to you and your interpersonal skills about what you can convince these people to do or not do, right? Yeah, you just have to know what it is you want to do. I mean, I can't tell you how many people call me and they say, I picked up the phone and I called my municipality and I asked if I could put a tiny house in my yard. And they said, no, we don't allow that. And they're technically right. Because tiny houses, it's not a term that's covered under the Ontario Building Code. It will be soon, and they have tiny house policies and clause in, in all the compendiums that come out. Um, but it's still, you know, some municipalities, basically, when you're talking to a municipality or you're emailing and you're asking a question, they are not able to give you an answer. So unless you're emailing about a specific property with a specific question, they will send you the information. But until you have a pre-consultation with that municipality and you're paying and you're opting into information gathering, they'll, they won't give you an answer. So people get so frustrated with municipal employees and that's really not their fault. They're not able to say, yeah, you can do this because what if the zoning doesn't allow it? What if through a survey, it's deemed that this property is actually on a floodplain? There's so many different things that they can't say yay or nay without more information. And so um, I, people get really discouraged and I understand that, but knowledge is power in this instance. And so, um, you know, when I call, again, when I call municipalities and I have those conversations, I'm using their language. I'm not saying tiny home. I'm saying secondary dwelling unit. I'm saying garden suite. I'm asking them what their minimum size requirement is for a secondary dwelling unit. And then when they ask me what building it is, I don't say it's a tiny home. I say it's a certified manufactured home. It's a modular home. It's a site built to the dual inspection certification. Um, 
route. And so there are there's language that you have to use to which you will get further down the line. And so that's why most people hire me for property searches because I can call them and I can do this research and I can have these conversations. Because again, if you ask the wrong question, you're going to get the wrong answer. <laughs> that is a great phrase. I love that. If you ask the wrong question, you're going to get the wrong answer. It's absolutely true. It's absolutely true, man. Yeah. Can you imagine, I guess, using that term tiny home and it just like sets a bomb off in these people's head. They're like, no, no, you can't. Shouldn't have, should have said garden suite. And that would have gotten you a lot longer. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's why you need to call the consulting services of Bianca, because she's going to make sure you don't totally screw the pooch on all this stuff, this new property that you just bought. You know, I remember dealing with the township person, like you said, so I bought in this unorganized township and they have kind of like a, a township office that handles like five different unorganized townships that are beside each other simultaneously, but there's literally just a single employee and they handle everything and they're so busy. So I called, I emailed, you know, they took like three weeks to get back. They gave me like, you know, one sentence answers. So I just went down there and it was like this lady named Debbie. And uh, thank I went right in the morning because I knew that's when people are usually high on caffeine. So they're in a very good mood. And she was, she had literally a mug this big, a bucket of coffee. She wanted to chat. We literally chatted for an hour and her parents were from Windsor. My parents are from Windsor. You know, we chat all this stuff and oh my God, she helped me so much. And I was actually locked in to buy this property that was landlocked. I knew the owner, he was going to sell it to me without even putting it on the, on the market in an unorganized township. But the neighbor to the South had given me permission to sever off a portion of his, his lot. And I'm like, oh my God. I am a real estate genius, a new mogul, because I'm getting this landlocked lot, right? I was basically buying it for like $500 an acre because nobody wanted it. And if I got the road access, the other properties in the area, you know, were selling for like $2,000 an acre. So I'm like, I am a boy genius. Oh my goodness. And then through this process with the township and they had to check with their planners, right? They used a third-party consulting firm in Sudbury and the planners came back. They're like, it's in a floodplain. You can't do it. I'm so sorry. And I literally found this information out like three days before it was going to close. And I was like, thank baby Jesus that I found out that information about the floodplain because it didn't appear to be in a floodplain at all. It was like very, very high and dry. So anyways, I mean, all this stuff is like, yeah. There seems it's like there's, there's so many things. It's like, you got to have a good relationship with the, you know, the local, the local government essentially. Yeah, uh, you just you have to be open. You have to have respect for people. You have to understand that there are systems and processes and you just have to be patient. I mean, you know, people are, when you lead with anger, sometimes you're, you can make a lot of change, but oftentimes it'll be, I don't like to lead with negativity and anger. Um, like I said, I buried my head in the books for two years. I found this garden suite bylaw, temporary use bylaw that made sense for land leasing. Um, and I literally just did what every millennial does and package it in a different pretty bow <laughs> and branded it differently. It's not a garden suite. It's a tiny hall. <laughs> and the municipalities just ate it up and they're like, yes, this is our solution. Amazing property owner can lease their land. Someone can live in this. This is fantastic. And then now I go, okay, great. Now that this policy is in place, how do we make this happen? And so I'm talking to banks and I'm talking to insurance and um, our tiny house insurance was actually the first tiny house policy in Ontario, which is really exciting. And I didn't take no for an answer. And I like, it was it was fun. It was a lot of fun. Um, the underwriters just at the the cooperators saw the merit in it and they said yes to us. And so um, that's really exciting. So honestly, it just takes one person with like a fire under their ass to who cares um, to make a change. And so you kind of have to follow that same route when you're trying to do something different. I mean, people are going to wait. They're going to wait two or three years until everything is a streamlined process and it's all laid out for you and will eventually be there. But for now, the people who are doing this are kind of the first people in the province to do it. And so it's all really exciting. Um, the tiny home show was, uh, I actually host the tiny home show. So aside from consulting, um, that, uh, what happened in Ancaster of this past summer was our second show. We had 4,500 people come um, through in three days. Yeah, it was a lot. We had 30 tiny home builders. Um, we had 45 indoor exhibitors, food trucks. We had a municipal day. We had about 50 different municipalities out, uh, municipal officials, 
counselors, mayors. Um, we were on CHCH News, CBC Radio. It was absolutely bananas. And so that tells me there's an appetite for this. And that tells me people are interested in a different solution. Um, and so it was absolutely incredible to see what the tiny house community was able to do. There are a lot of resources out there. My website, my partner, um, from Tiny Homes in Canada, you can go on their website. There's so much information, you just have to know where to look. And so I've quite literally monopolized or capitalized on misinformation. <laughs> and that's how I've made my business is finding the right answers. And then saying, hey, I have the answers. I promise you, <laughs> come to me. Don't go to Google. Um, and anyway, so I'll digress there. But yeah, lots of stuff. That's awesome. That's it. Yeah, it, it only takes one person, one person named Bianca, the tiny home lady, uh, to make this stuff. <laughs> um, a bunch of other. People. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my goodness. Well, that's that's great. Uh, so yeah. So let's talk about this thing. Uh, I believe from what you're saying earlier that you kind of revolutionized in Gray County about this land lease as well as option to get a mortgage up to $200,000. So that's something that I guess, is that primarily for people that are proactively looking for land themselves? Or is that also something that like a landowner that maybe wants to convert their backyard into more housing, gentle density, as you were saying? Wait a minute, were you saying gentle density or gentle intensity earlier? Gentle intensification. Gentle, intensive. Okay. 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 Got it. Got it. Got it. Um, yeah. So like yeah. that's kind of from both angles there. Right. So maybe if you could talk a little bit about, uh, about that, the leasing and the mortgage and, and, and all that jazz. For sure. So if you can kind of segregate it again, um, we're looking at people who own their own properties and want to build on their property, um, whether it's a vacation rental, a secondary dwelling unit, an in-law suite, a garden suite, any of the above. That is all covered under policy, which means it's all covered under conventional construction loans, conventional build loans, HELOCs, reverse mortgages, uh, personal loans. However, you're going to finance your construction project. All of those products, financial products already exist with the big banks. So you're not necessarily looking for a tiny house mortgage or a mortgage for a structure that's not attached to land. You're just entering into a conventional construction uh, loan or however you you decide to finance. Um, but when it comes to somebody who is wants to purchase their own modular tiny home certified, I heavily, heavily state properly certified. And I, I have all those certifications on my website and I can send them in the show notes as well. Um, a properly certified tiny home. Um, you can have, there's a few ways to do that. So the very first loans that were given out for these tiny homes were technically recreational vehicle loans, RV loans. And you'll find a lot of V lenders and C lenders um, who are still using that as a caveat for financing this. And that's not okay because if you're buying an RV, you're buying an RV, you're buying a seasonal dwelling, you're, you're buying an RV on wheels, you're doing something of that nature. You're not buying um, a structure meant for human habitation. So a lot of the tiny houses on wheels that you see online, they're actually certified to an RV standard, which is actually um, built to international building code, not Ontario building code. So you can't actually live in it full year. So when you see tiny houses on wheels, those, the properly certified ones are under what's called a CSA Z240.2.1. Um, and so that's just a, basically a, a bunch of fancy numbers. That, yeah, it's all uh, locked in there. Um, a bunch of fancy numbers that uh, mean it is built to a performance-based compliance and it covers all of the Ontario Building Code requirements under this. Um, CSA is just a safety authority and certification body, um, mainly for factories and, and manufactured homes. So those are the tiny houses on wheels you can live in. It's a CSA model. Um, you can have tiny houses on wheels that are built to uh, when they could be engineered. Um, they have you know an engineer stamp on, on them or they're built to what's called the two-stage certification process, which I actually mentioned a little bit earlier. Basically what that means is a builder, a tiny house builder or otherwise, um, builds the home and, and has it inspected the municipality it's being built in. 
So for example, Post Lynch builds, has a builder that lives in Post Lynch and Post Lynch uh, building department inspects this home uh, through specific stages of construction. If that home is going to um, Innisfil, I keep bringing up Innisfil, <laughs> good old random Innisfil, um, Innisville building department would then reinspect and certify that home when it's brought to site. So this was actually a really great caveat to not having to buy certified tiny homes. CSA certifications are extremely expensive to attain as a builder and was really prohibitive to the movement um, once all these tiny house policies started coming through through Bill 108. So um, I'll kind of digress a little bit from there. So basically uh, the misinformation about getting an RV loan if you're getting an RV loan, that means your home has a VIN number, a vehicle identification number, which means again, it's a recreational vehicle. So the only way that some of these people were able to satisfy the loan was to provide a VIN number. But a VIN number mean, it means it's an RV. And if it's an RV, it's not gonna get a building permit from the municipality and it's not gonna get insurance and it's not gonna, you see kind of where I'm going with this. So what, um, what the big banks have done and most credit unions and B lenders have done is wait to see where the movement was going. And now with, you know, um, for example, my business and then a bunch of other, all of the tiny house builders in Ontario, um, and, you know, people who are getting into this movement, tiny home show, all of these different kind of players who are showing that there's legitimacy to this and working on building the movement. Now the banks are finally like, okay, there's something here. So from my understanding, there are, I think two of the five big banks are, um, have other considering or have policy already. And I don't want to miss say who it is. Um, because I heard it in passing from a presentation at the show that I wasn't at. So I, I wouldn't, I would prefer not to say, but the good news is, is that, so this would be a conventional mortgage. So you would work with your builder. You would work with someone like me to find property for you um, or with you. And then, or maybe you have a parent that, you know, um, someone with a back 40 um, who can host this home. And then you kind of, you know, you marry all the pieces together and you satisfy the conditions of, of a mortgage for the tiny home. Um, and then you kind of go about your merry way. Awesome. That's very interesting. So the kind of build costs for a tiny home, you know, you said that mentioned that your place was like 260 square feet, I believe. Right. Um, to build a tiny home of that size, are we talking, a few hundred like is it a hundred thousand dollars is it 200 quarter million dollars like what is the kind of ballpark usually for that kind of stuff and i know there's a lot of variables right but like in ontario what do you what do you see yeah. out there yeah i mean i'll be very transparent five years ago my house was sixty thousand dollars um and i could probably resell that today at about 225 250 um be easily for sure. I mean, my house is adorable. <laughs> I love it. So people would buy it. Um, right now, if you're looking at sizing parameters, uh, anything that's between eight feet and 20 to 30 feet, you're looking at spending on the very low end from maybe, you know, your, your brother's construction company who can still do all the permits and get all the materials and build it for you. Maybe it's just a frame and maybe it's bare minimum. 80,000, 90,000. Um, but then you're going up from there. So a lot of tiny home uh, packages will start around the 110,000 mark for smaller units, one bedroom, one bathroom, which is great for aging in place and, and all these kind of things. Um, you can then expect your average tiny home, what, 10 by 30 median to be around 150,000. And you can expect to go up from there. A fully custom, say like 12 by 40 tiny home um, you're looking at about 250 and then um, anything above that is you're you're working with a builder who is creating something that's highly 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 custom top of the line everything <laughs> golden crested plates um, if you're paying any more than three hundred thousand dollars for a tiny home um, you know depending on the size I would I would be careful. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I saw a crazy ad in this magazine. I forget what it was. It was like a tiny home. I don't know what the dimensions of it was, but like enough for two people to live. It had a hot stove. It was all glass and copper plating, but the copper plating was aged, you know? So it wasn't like that shiny copper. It was kind of, uh, you know, has that like bluish, you know, greenish hue to it. 
And uh, it's from some company, I believe it was in Nova Scotia. And I think it was like 225,000 US dollars. Um, but that was like pretty spiffy, like using copper at that scale. It's got to be insanely expensive, I imagine. Um, but there's kind of crazy stuff out there like that, right? Um, that people can get into. Um, by the way, I have, uh, sorry, go ahead. Sorry. No, then I, you have packages. It, it, so if you're up. If you're above like the 350 square feet, you could, sorry, I think we might have a delay. Um, you, and there's a, there's obviously chances to go above that because off-grid packages and solar packages are like very expensive. So I know a few tiny homes that have been around the $400,000 mark, that actually makes sense because they have so many different capabilities, but sorry, you were, I cut you off. What were you saying? No, that's good to know. I was just going to make a, a silly joke that my birthday is coming up. So if anyone wants to gift me that uh, tiny home from that Nova Scotia constructor with all the copper, please do so. Just just give it to me. That would be great. You might find your sugar daddy somewhere around here. The the plaid, like the, the camo really does it for people. <laughs> it's, a, it's a thing. You could probably find it. I you Listen, might not, you not have to do much. Yeah, yeah. I mean, usually I would prefer a sugar mommy, but if it's a $250,000 copper tiny helm, I could accept a sugar daddy. Yes, that would be fun. That would be fun. Um... <laughs> yeah, I should have. Yes. But uh, okay, final question before I let you go, because we're coming up on the hour mark here. Um, how has been living in the tiny home? Has it met your expectations? Has it exceeded your expectations? You've already been there for what? A few years now and do you see yourself living there forever this yes <laughs> yes and no um the this tiny house has given our family everything absolutely everything we've become closer as a family um my husband and i've been together for 15 years we've been we're like just fire fire and stone my friend <laughs> it's fantastic um very strong marriage very strong relationship our son is just the lovely human, lovely human. Do I want to, you know, toss him off a bridge sometimes? Yes, but I think any mother would <laughs> probably relate. Um, anyway, so what the tiny house has done has brought us so much closer together. We have to learn how to live together. We have to learn how to manage each other's spaces and emotions. We don't have a basement to run in and hide to. We don't have separate bedrooms we can go and slam the door in. I mean, we have six acres that we can go and go in the forest and scream a little bit, but otherwise, um, you know, we're we're building this life together. We have two acres of gardens here. We have a greenhouse, we bees and chickens. Actually, we have nine less chickens this past week, but some of our chickens got eaten by <laughs> something. <laughs> yeah, I know, I'm sad. Um, but it is everything. We have a beautiful sense of financial freedom. It is. It gave me a few years to take off work to be able to build this business. And thankfully, um, I can say with my consulting and with the show that it is given. It's just given the gift, um, and I, that's a pleasure for me because I keep getting to to help others. Um, and will we stay here forever? No. I'm actually. Uh, it's funny. I'm looking to add an addition onto the tiny house at a 10 by 12 or a 12 by 14 addition, which I think I don't know any other person is like, yeah, I'm adding an addition onto my house, but it's only a hundred square feet. Um, so uh, that allows us to kind of make the space a bit bigger um, and move Bodie into the loft and do, do a few different things. Uh, and so from there, I plan, we plan on buying a hobby farm, hopefully in the next five to six years. And then we'll just live out our forties on this stunning hobby farm. And yeah, so that's the plan. I, don't think we'll always live tiny, but I'll bring this with us and we'll rent it out and we'll let other people experience it. But this Bodie can have this house one day, you know, we, this downsizing gave us the greatest gift and we took a huge risk in doing this and it really paid off. So if I could leave anyone with any piece, sense of <laughs> information or anything, advice, um, it's take the risk, take the risk. Absolutely. Take the calculated risk. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's crazy. You know, the age old uh, advice of living beneath one's means, you know, and I think some people it's like the dream of home ownership. We were talking about earlier the the crisis in housing in this province compared to what the immigration targets are, the mismatch between those two things. It's like most people, they they're just desperate for houses. So this may be a, the tiny home may be a solution 
to even just meet your bare minimum requirements, but it also may be a solution that you're going to be happier and healthier with the social dynamics of your family, like you're talking about. Also, fun fun fact: my buddy who who's been living in this illegally, you know, 108 square foot two level cabin, he says it forces him to spend a lot more time outside because there's just not a lot of room to lounge around inside, right? Which is also great for you. Um, but also, you know, if you are living in a more expensive home or a condo or something, you might be able to downsize the amount of like your monthly expenditures by moving into a tiny home and really improving your financial health, you know, that way too. And it sounds like you've built up a huge amount of equity in your tiny home as well. I guess final little question related onto that, because you're leasing the land where you are, if that lease somehow ended, would you somehow be able to lose your tiny home because of that? You know what I mean? Like, is that lease like a 99 year lease or something? Or like, what if the landowner was like, I don't like these people anymore. I'm going to find a way to end their lease. Would you have to like physically take your tiny home off of that property and try to wheel it somewhere else? Yes. And that's the point of this temporary use bylaw. It has to be modular you have to move, be able to move your home. Um, a temporary use is the original garden suite bylaw. So it's basically every, it's under the planning act. So every municipality has to allow a garden suite. The temporary use bylaw means you're only permitting it for a period, a num period of years. Um, and usually it's up to 21 years, but it could be more. Um, and so a lot of municipalities are, are trying to eliminate the garden suite policy in favor of the secondary dwelling unit policy. Basically, it doesn't matter how it happens. Some municipalities charge more or less for either or permit. Um, but if you are living in a, a modular tiny home, it has to be movable. Um, so again, those are the land leasers are not people who are building a structure that's in place. Um, and you own the structure. The property owner does not have structure title to your to your well, it doesn't have ownership over your structure, you do. It's just literally the land and you have to go through a land lease agreement and um, all of that kind of, all of those different caveats to to keep everything above board. Property owners are usually the ones who set up the services, um, water hydroseptic for the tiny home that's coming in. And between you and me, I really think um, that the people who are going to benefit from this the most is um, the aging population who is the biggest population out there right now is the, is the retirees. And so they don't wanna leave their homes. They don't wanna downsize into retirement communities. So they could stay on their, beautiful five acres on the Niagara Escarpment and they could, well, maybe not the Niagara Escarpment, somewhere else, <laughs> but um, they could have their adult child move, move home, you know, and, and, and rent, you know, like lease out a piece of land, their parents could stay in the house or maybe it's vice versa. I have a lot of clients who are buying properties, parents who are buying properties for their children in their twenties, or even their children who have families in their thirties. And then you're getting a, you're buying the house and then you're also doing the research to see if you can do a secondary dwelling unit and this the children are paying for the secondary dwelling unit the parents are paying for the home and then you get this whole living situation that makes sense for everybody um so there's a lot of really unique ways in which people will do it so sorry i kind of went on with my answer there but um yeah no that's fine i i thought it was hilarious you started that that uh, entire idea off between you and me <laughs> on a <laughs> everyone <podcast>. listening <laughs> Just between you and me, don't tell anyone else. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, that's interesting. So even if the landowner is like uh, Dr. Evil and they um, try to get you out of there, you can take your home away. You still own the home. So like when you were saying earlier, you built your home for like 60 grand and it's now worth, I believe you said like 200 grand or more than 200 grand. That's the value of just the home without any land title or lease associated with it whatsoever. Just the value of the structure itself. Yeah, and that's me assuming that a eight by 30 on wheels with pine interior, cedar exterior, and it being partially off grid, that's what I would expect to pay on the market. So that's kind of what I'm assuming um, it would be, I would say probably around the $200 mark, $200,000 mark. $200 people, contact her. She's selling it for $200. Okay, okay. <laughs> well, well, Super legit. yeah. Well, thank you so much, uh, Bianca from The Giving Tree. So before we uh, we wrap up here, if people want to use your consulting services, where do you want to direct them in terms of websites, emails, uh, social media accounts, et cetera? 
Yes, absolutely. So they can get a lot of really great uh, content from my Instagram, which is at thegivingtree.tinyhome. And so I have a lot of tours of my own tiny house, how I've organized things, off-grid lifestyle, sustainable parenting tips, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then I have a lot of information on bylaws and policies and different things that have come out. So certainly go through that material. If you're looking to book an appointment, I help people who are wanting to buy their own tiny home and find land to lease. I help people who are buying property to build, whether it's a tiny home as a principal or a secondary. Um, and I do business to business consulting. So there are a lot of companies that hire me to basically show them how to get into the tiny house industry, um, which has really helped in developing the tiny home show because now they all exhibit at the tiny home show. Um, and so it's, it's a really exciting thing to be able to kind of be able to, to, you know, juggle all these potatoes. Um, and they can find that information on my website, how I can help them um, under the contact, you know, information there. They can book a consultation. They can book a 10, a free 10 minute call, which is great. Um, so just tell me what you're looking to do and I can tell you how I can help. Um, and then, yeah, I connect people with the greater industry. So, I mean, I, I hold a lot of the, the answers for some things, but then there are the people who are going to accomplish those projects. So I have trusted builders that I work with, realtors, financial advisors. Um, goodness, I'm a permaculture designer as well. So I do um, permaculture design. I mean, it's it's a lot, it's a full spectrum service. So they can find that on my website, www.thegivingtreefamily.com. Um, and then I, uh, that's actually it, just the two. Okay, that's amazing. And also, folks, Bianca was telling me earlier that she does have a tattoo of Doug Ford on her hand. So if you're lucky, she'll show that to you as well. It's 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 a very special tattoo, her favorite person. Oh, my God, you actually do have a lot of tattoos. <laughs> yeah, I have a bunch. Nothing about Doug Ford, though. There's nothing I could attribute. There's a lot of like floral. And I don't know if he owns a plant. So who knows? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I really hope not. <clears throat> Awesome. We, we all know you have a Doug Ford tattoo. It's okay. Uh, but yeah, thank you so much, Bianca, for coming on the Wild Ontario. You are a wild Ontario, amazing human out there doing great things in Ontario. So thank you so much. Double salute. 